I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. My guest today is Benjamin Raymond from Great Britain. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Greg. I first heard about you when I saw a video shared on Facebook, a YouTube video. It was a morning current affairs program, and it was a segment called Radicals, and you were being interviewed by a young woman named Katrine Nye, and she was asking about you and your group, National Action, and I was very impressed because she asked you, do you consider yourself a racist? And you were very, very calm about that, and you said, yes, I'm comfortable with that, or something to that effect. She asked if you were a Nazi, and you seemed very, very comfortable in saying, yes, I'm a national socialist. I thought your manner sold the points really well, and I thought that was admirable, because I think a lot of our people make a mistake when they act really defensive or nervous about these sorts of things, and you just calmly went on with your points. So I thought that was really very impressive. So the next I heard of you was at the London Forum. I was introduced to you, and I didn't put the the two um, the two people together until a little later. But uh, anyway, I've been you've been on my map since then, and I thought it would be great to just give you a call and try to get to know you a little better, and also get to know your group a little better. Uh, National Action. So, just to begin, can you give us a little bit of biography? Where you were born, where you grew up your education, things like that? Uh, sure. I'll try and be as uh, succinct as I can. Well, I was um, I was born in West Sussex, which is on the south coast of England. Um, my father was a Catalonian folk singer, and I spent the first few years of my life in Spain, and it's left me with a, a slight accent. So most people I speak to in the British Isles, they um, usually think I'm from uh, America or South Africa or Australia. I've got, like... It's not a thick accent, but it's a, a slight twang. Um, I went to a Christian school, like um, a Church of England school, but uh, I think like most people of my generation, I, I don't think I was ever religious. Um, uh, secondary school as well. I think what is important to understand about like European schools, and it applies to British schools as well, is that a lot of the teachers or most of the teaching class uh, have very strong uh, Trotskyite leanings, and um, the town that I'm from, which was uh, which is Bognor Regis, is even today like uh, it's it's still 98% white. You know, I I don't think I ever saw a, a non-white until I was a, a teenager. So we were actually very gullible. Like uh, you know, we we took in a lot of this stuff, um, but I, I saw there were these inconsistencies uh, that started to bother me. Um, you know, about the world I was growing up in, uh, particularly the, you know, the left, it, it talks about, you know, social and economic justice. Uh, but I don't understand why they were always attacking the the far right and people they are regarded as racists who I kind of identified as being people who have um, the least amount of power in society, lowest representation. And many of them appeared to me increasingly to be uh, sincere people with um, legitimate concerns, even if I didn't agree with them at the time. And uh, they were just being like, uh, they were treated awfully. Um, I also, growing up, wanted to, always wanted to be an artist. But I saw what the art scene was like and 
how it was very ide- geared towards a very specific ideology that I just couldn't really understand. Um, and a major, but for me, a very major turning point was when I was about 16 and I read uh, Mein Kampf for the first time. I came into it with this, all of the prejudices that had uh, been put to me. But even though I would say about 90% of the message went over my head, um, it presented this worldview that um, I found myself identifying with. I found that the strength of the message was um, very sympathetic because in our society we don't really encounter people with um, a very strong level of conviction uh, in what they believe in. And uh, someone like Adolf Hitler, he was a man with, um, how do I put it, he had a, like a grudge against the world. And to me that was very powerful. So um, I, grad- I went to university and I graduated. And I, I started to get involved in right-wing politics. And the first thing that struck me was that uh, very little about what attracted to me, uh, me to the movement was really present and um, how would I put it there's there's a profound there's almost like two personalities or two currents within the far right um, uh, for instance you have this you know fascism it's a very romantic movement it's it's empowering but uh, quite a strong theme within British nationalism was uh, like uh, the conspiracy theory angle, and it, this is kind of universal with all, within all far right movements. But it's it's kind of a worldview that puts you in a place of weakness, where you have no strength and no ability to really fight what is an overpowered system. You know, it's it's incredibly depressing, and the same applies to the way they take up this this victim angle, right? There's nothing compelling about this, and it, it just seemed to me to like to project weakness when you come to a movement that is supposed to be about uh, is be about strength. I think there's like an inherent contradiction of fascism that, you know, it's a it's on the one hand, it's a very social movement. But on the other hand, it um, for the same reason, it attracts people who are also like, for lack of a better word, incredibly autistic. So, you know, you have people who um, their vision of the world is, for instance, like they want marching columns of people in all these different colors, right? Because they're very simple mindset. And it's like for the same reason they like something like Sonic the Hedgehog. They like fascism, this world of order and sobriety. And, you know, it's, it's a clash of two different mentalities, a positive and a negative and I see that within, you know, mainstream politics like the British National Party I get into later is this negativity was um, the most preeminent factor behind it. Um, I also came in at a time uh, when the London New Right had just gotten started, and that was around uh, 2005. And uh, the aim of the London New Right was to create this intellectual movement based on what is called like a deconstruction. So they believe that by um, exploring culture from a specific viewpoint that they that would promote the viewpoint. But 
the problem with deconstruction is you can bloviate as much as you want to, but if you can deconstruct anything to be implicitly white, then the values somehow get lost. So this is quite important for me because I, the first kind of political activity I was involved in was to join and eventually run a group called the Integralist Party of Great Britain. And I use this as a platform to kind of make a point because I saw people were putting out, this is, this is around 2008 to 2010 were, um, you know, putting out the, this, this, what you call like culture war, but from a very ambiguous point of view, you know, which is kind of a really, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, is a really present factor in right wing politics is as a way of self defense. They put ambiguity out, right? Um, you, if you're looking to discourse, right? It's something the right wing wingers do. They, will say, ah, oh, liberals, they're the real racist. Or, you know, it's, it's in every single aspect of the right wing. Yeah, they use euphemisms, basically. Right, right. And so the point I wanted to make was I could get completely random people that I, I, could, I could find, and I got them to submit their own essays to, to the group's publication attack. And the message that was in it was... Uh, would be very radical and it would be just more intelligent than what was being kind of put out already. Um, and it was in a way kind of a precursor to, uh, the image board culture that's kind of taken over the movement to quite a large degree. Like if I were to say to you like 10 years ago that the mainstay of the movement you know, 10 years afterwards would be like Holocaust jokes and visceral racism. No one would have believed you, but uh, this is kind of how it's worked. And like the thing about an image board is it operates on the basis of like social Darwinism, like weak messages, weak narratives. They, they can't really survive the chomp. It's only the uh, extremes that come forward. And I felt that to create a group, you need people who are very committed and very extreme. And I'm going to present some examples to that effect later. But it was these elements and ideas that came into, or these experiences that came into the creation of the Integralist Party. When I first spoke to its principal organizer, Alex, Alex Davies, which was formed in late 2013. One question, just define image board. An image board would be, um, an image board is basically a website where you post messages, um, with an image attached. Uh, I think most people would know something like 4chan, but there was quite a lot of them. Um, and if I were to give you a very brief history, originally 4chan website had a new section called new, and that was, uh, expelled or expunged from the, um, from the board that went on to become fortune.net. And that is where basically every single running joke of the alt-right came from, from the what man cartoons, everything that you were familiar with um, originated here. And then when the political board was reopened, that became into the mainstream. And you're talking 
the only significance of this is the size of the audience. Like, I would say many of our most capable organizers and supporters were recruited directly off these websites, which is an important change because the problem with our movement is we're not very good at recruiting people from outside it. A lot of the groups that exist in the UK are generational. I, I'll be able to get into that a little bit later. But if that clarifies your definition of an image board. Right. So you're talking about discussion forums that deal primarily in memes. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the Integralist Party. This is bringing us up to 2013. So just continue on from there. Uh, okay. So I began working with Alex Davies and what we decided to do was, um, basically rebrand nationalism. Like, there was a problem with the way, well, the problem with white nationalists is, God bless them, they're not very inventive with the way that they present themselves. And I, I, this requires a lot of context, so I may as well give it. Um, we had about 10 years of having an electoral party, the, the British National Party. Um, the Griffin took over, I believe it was in round 2001. And he brought in a lot of his own ideas, which was based on a very clean presentation, the embracing of uh, kind of patriotic virtue, virtues and primarily uh, point scoring. And the way that that strategy worked would be played out in the um, in the infamous question time debate when that image met the reality of actually having the chance to have a platform and debate with an adversary. And the entire thing crumbled uh, under scrutiny. And the reason it crumbled because was because all he cared about was having a morally superior position, right? He believed that, well, after the program, he argued, well, this was a success because I went in with the intention of being the underdog, and that is what I got out of it. But, you know, people are not attracted to weakness and uh, and weak leaders, and this has been a major factor behind the creation of national action, is we've got very angry with the way that various, for the previous 10 years, there's been many right-wing projects that have come forward and... They have been repressed quite violently, no matter how much they moderate their message. So you had a very sincere and concerned, um, what you call, um, I would even call him a multiculturalist um, figure called uh, Tommy Robinson, uh, who was the head of the uh, English Defense League. And he was portrayed as this neo-Nazi thug. Um, We've had, um, there was a group on the university called... um, uh, the national culturalists who, whose basic premise was, we believe that all cultures are equal, but cultures have a right to defend themselves. Uh, and it was vaguely nationalistic, but they were completely run off the campus without putting up like any kind of a fight. And, you know, um, on the campuses in particular, which is the main thing that we wanted to target as a, a student organization, uh, they banned things like the Nietzsche Society. And um, they've even banned UKIP at one point. And it's like no matter how hard, you know, we try to appease the enemy, they've never ever 
um, taken us up on any of our offers. So this appeasement strategy doesn't work. So we felt we need to take an opposite approach. I don't know about using the term appeasement for the simple reason that maybe these people are being sincere. I mean, maybe they're sincerely moderate. Well, the thing is, what it, the way the argument is put to us, so you're, you're correct, you have organizations like the English Defense League, which don't even regard themselves as being, quote, right-wing. They believe that they are centrist or center-left. Uh, but within the right-wing, there's a common argument that we must play politics, that there is this metapolitical angle where we have to present ourselves in a certain way and then we will be accepted. But wink, wink, nudge, nudge, this is what we really believe. Right. We call those mainstreamers, yeah. Yeah. The, the damage is that, yes, some, sometimes they, they do sincerely believe it, and that can happen on every single level. So that is why there are hundreds of right-wing groups that exist. They all hate each other on an ideological level, because they, they can't agree. They go, oh, this guy's too extreme and this guy's too moderate, right? And they shelve themselves off. Whereas if you look to the left, they're entirely unified. Like as a group, there's uh, what you call like complete cross-fertilization. They see themselves as a single movement and they can't be shamed into throwing the more extreme elements under the bus. If you tried to put that to them, they laugh at you. I've seen this quite regularly with right-wingers. They'll say something, they'll try and like bring up to a moderate, like something like the crimes of communism, and go, oh, don't you think that was so awful as well? And to them, it's like a total absurdity, because it doesn't in any way invalidate their position. And I feel the right, the right needs to have the same approach, so like kind of a unity of the right, and the unity of the right comes from a situation where the right wing does realizes that it cannot promote its cause by throwing people under the bus or in fact by attacking leftwards is actually pays off more than attacking rightwards if that makes sense yeah i agree with that that would that would um, that would explain for instance like uh, uh let's say the candidacy of uh, donald trump i remember he was asked uh, quite recently what do you think of all these like neo-Nazis who support you. And he just said, everyone loves me. Now, if that had been like even a moderate far-right figure in like Western Europe, they would absolutely use that as a free opportunity to signal, right? But he saw that there was no nothing to gain by signaling. It's a strategy. The guy himself is, as I understand it, like probably extremely moderate. He's ex an extreme centrist in his actual policies, yeah. Yeah. But it's about attitude. It's about what actually people will cling to. And what we want is a situation where these attacks they use on us no longer have any, um, any effect. But somebody at some point has to stand up and actually fight for these on some level. Right. I, I agree with that. I, I do not like what we call mainstreamers in America. And by mainstreamers, uh, I mean people who basically will come to you and they'll say, we agree what you, with what you radicals believe, but we think we need to tone it down a bit and play towards the center and things like that. Now, if people really are centrists, if they really have these convictions, it doesn't matter to me. But the people who are insincere about these things and are basically telling other people to be insincere and to play along with them, I, I think the whole dynamic is wrong because the trouble... The trouble with the whole political 
setup in the West today is there is an inbuilt leftward drift. And when people on the right start trying to accommodate their message to people in the center, that's basically capitulating to the leftward drift. And when you ask yourself, how did this leftward drift get started? It's because people on the far left do not capitulate towards the center, right? They constantly demand that politics move their way. They, they do not move towards the center. They move the center towards them. And the right is not going to change anything until we get outside of the mentality that we have to move towards the center and, and actually realize that the whole point is to get the center to move towards us And the way to do that is not to abandon our principles or hide our principles, but to persuade people that our principles are true. Hmm. Now, what do you, um, what exactly do you mean by uh, persuading people? Winning them over, changing their minds. Uh, there are a number of levels to persuasion. The best kind of persuasion would be to bring a person over and for them to have all the reasons and to be completely rational in their convictions and capable of arguing for these convictions themselves and persuading others. That's, that's the best kind of persuasion because you give people the correct opinions, but you also give them rational foundations for these opinions and they can go out and they can replicate their own conversion process, right? Not everybody's capable of, of being converted that way because it presupposes a certain level of intelligence and articulateness and really an ethical commitment to, to getting to the truth. Like uh, 5% of the population are yeah. capable of, you know, um, embracing an emotional, like, um, like we want to call a metaphysical or worldview, right? Right. Whereas most of the population, as far as I understand it, are motivated more by social norms and strengthen who's in power, which is why kind of having an artistic movement that undermines social norms uh, is also very important. Yeah, I would agree. The, the next level of persuasion would be basically giving people the correct opinions, but not really on objective foundations, just because they identify with a person They identify with an image, with a group, with a flag, whatever. You know, it would be basically irrational persuasion towards a true opinion. And a large, large numbers of people are capable of that kind of, of conversion. And that, that's why you need irrational appeals as well. And by irrational, I, it's not a put down. I'm not talking about raving insanity. I'm just talking about things that appeal to the non-rational parts of every human soul, like our desire to believe or belong, things like that, our aesthetic sensibility. And then right. if, yeah. you, if you gain a significant enough percentage of a population through those two kinds of persuasion, and you actually start making political headway, then people will sort of jump on board, and you can persuade them simply by offering them stuff. Right. So large numbers of people are sort of ideologically neutral. But if you are the person who can plausibly offer them three basic goods that everyone looks for from the political uh, order, namely prosperity and security and peace, then I think that uh, you, you can bring those people over and they'll be persuaded as well. 
they'll be persuaded to follow you not because of their deep convictions, but just because of your ability to deliver things. And I think that nationalists can persuade people on all those levels because we really have won all the intellectual debates. People don't know it yet, but we really have won all the intellectual debates. The left is a total hollow colossus now. It's it's this huge bloated presence in the culture that's basically hooked up to life support, right? And, uh, you know, we need to pull the feeding tubes out of it and, and put it out of its misery. But, um, and, and once we've done that, I think more people will be aware that they don't have any intellectual status anymore. We've won all the intellectual debates. We need to start winning people over in the media and the culture. And I think that we are making beginnings in that direction. Definitely, there's been a huge amount of progress in that in just the last couple of years. Beginnings. It's on, I, I understand you probably want to talk about the group, but just to continue this vein of um, uh, conversation. I mean, you're talking about a very small area. Like right? I feel within the outright and in general, um, they are able. They have a formula that let's say wins the debate. But it's it's you know extended to a very small portion of the population. I feel it's not so much a matter of persuasion. But like you talk about the we, right? We've won the debate. But what that we should mean in reality is we the right. Well, the right, if we were to look at every single Western country, doesn't have a unified idea of what it's what it is. So something like to go back to an earlier example, like the English Defence League, was how people mobilised themselves in a kind of counter-revolutionary right-wing fashion as they understood right-wing values to be, which was, you know, a complete lack of values because we have people who've sold us out ideologically over the last, like, uh, decades to the point where we don't know what we even believe anymore. Like, even people on the extreme right, you know, it's it's so hard to decode. Like, well, what do you actually believe in? And how can we say that we have won the debate when the right itself does not, you know, have the same conviction or even understand what it is at the present time? The aim, our aim should be to take the right. And that is why our group is aimed exclusively towards the right wing by by saying that we've won the intellectual debates i simply mean on the most important issues for instance the biological nature and reality of race and the the fact that race matters uh there's no question that the race realist position is true on the philosophical and historical and political question of what diversity brings to a society there's no question that diversity is a negative it's almost always a negative and every serious political thinker in the western tradition and also in the far east for that matter that i've surveyed would have laughed at the idea that a society can become stronger by increasing ethnic and religious conflict and differences within it uh in terms of the the jewish question i think that we We've won that debate. I mean, by one, I mean that we have the true position that the alternative positions have been basically destroyed intellectually. And it's just a matter of time 
an effort to get more people aware of that fact. So on those important issues, I think we've won. Yeah, there's a lot of disunity on the right. And I think that we have to work to, to some extent, to unify the right. We have to get, you know, the bad approaches uh, to stand down or disappear and the good approaches to triumph. I tend to want to avoid intra-right polemics because I think that's sort of uh, a time-wasting thing. I have so, I have limited time. I have limited resources. And for that simple reason, I don't want to spend a lot of time attacking people in my own camp because that's time taken away from attacking the really target-rich environment of the of the mainstream. But I do hope that people will be attentively looking at different groups and looking at their performance and making up their minds, and eventually certain strategies will win out. They'll win out just because they produce more and better material, right? They produce more and better actions. So I, I think that the unification process that, that you would like to see happen is going to happen primarily that way. I, I really am strongly opposed to the, uh, this. I call it a rookie move uh, that you see with a lot of people. They create their internet party, their internet website, right? And then the first thing that they do is launch a series of attacks against other groups. And it's the idea of, let's begin with a purge, right? I'm going to run up my little ideological flag, and then I'm going to start firing on all the people who are very close to me with the goal of trying to peel off their survivor, uh, their, um, their supporters and their donors and win them over to the new group. And I've been watching this happen for years now, and generally what happens is uh, it, it might persuade a few people to actually change teams, but I think more people actually just get disgusted and uh, detached from the whole movement because they just think it's a waste of their time, and it's sort of exhausting, and it's, it's just a lot of drama. You know, infighting is, is, is endemic to the right, and I think a lot of people just leave. Another, another really bad form of this is the schismatic approach where, you know, there's an organization or a group, and then suddenly somebody decides, well, I'm going to break off from this and take the rest of them with me. Usually about 20% go with the, the schism maker, and, you know, maybe another 20% stay with the original thing, and a huge number of them just give up because they get sick of it. They get exhausted with all the drama and infighting. So I, I, do, I do think that this process of, of unifying things and getting people, um, you know, working together more productively is, is an ongoing thing. Uh, but I, And I do hope that it, it is coming about. And I think the best way it's going to come about, the best way of criticizing other people is just to do better than them. I couldn't have put it better myself. I was exactly what I was going to say, pretty much. Um, we've always believed, I've always believed that you prove your point by your results and that you never initiate with it. You don't really need to initiate with people on another, the other side of the argument because success is its own reward and they either go with it or they, they go under. In, in my opinion, and the, you know, the, just having the pure Darwinism um, of politics will just um, 
will allow us to prove our point. Um, but at the same time, I feel that there's an ideological argument that can be made. So uh, positions need to be attacked, and positions do get attacked just by implicitly by standing for a certain um, strategy or a certain way of thinking. You are effectively condemning the other side or the other strategy. There is a debate to be had there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and and I try again. I tr- I, I have made positions on recent debates. Uh, last year there was a a blow up between Ramsey Paul and um, Andrew Anglin, and Colin Liddell got in on it, and I wrote a couple of pieces trying to state my views on the matter too. I try to av- try to avoid that, but if the if the discussion is raised to a certain level. Uh, where it, it's actually productive, I think I'll, I'll try and take part in it. So yeah, the, it, it, it's it's a delicate thing, though. It's a delicate thing because it's easy for these things to be dragged down and to drag everybody else down with it. But if there, if if it elevates itself and it's elevating for the cause, uh, yeah, we do need to we do need to conduct these sorts of discussions, uh, and I, I think they can be done profitably. I mean, it's a matter of personalities. Like, when I don't mean like individual personalities not liking each other, but what individually motivates everyone who's on the far right? Because what it comes down to is contradictory motivations. There are people who are in here because they believe in something, and there's others who are here because they want to role play. And role playing comes in in many, many different forms, basically. And getting those, the way that. Uh, we deal with it as an organization is, you know, like you say, said, uh, like you said, organizations, they split all the time, right? What we did was we set up national action in such a way as that it would repulse people with a negative attitude because it's, to explain it, it's like an inherently informal organization. And if you cannot present yourself informally, then, you know, you are not genuine in your beliefs, if that makes sense. It's, uh, it's a test. It's, it's kind of, this conversation is slightly confusing because it's, it's, it's a political discussion. I'm not sure if it's a political discussion or a bi- biographical discussion about um, national action and my involvement in it. Well, it's both, I guess. You know, we'll we'll get more into national action. Uh, I just I feel kind of bad using it as an example because because um, you're quite a disadvantage if you can't just like bring up examples of what you are or what you're doing or what your strategy is. And it's to put it this way is to put it too succinctly. Like it, it requires a lot more elaboration. Right. Well. Let's let's talk a bit about national action then. Let's get more of that out there for uh, our listeners. When did national action come about? What is your role in it? What are its goals? Tell us about the size of the group, members, supporters, ideology, and so forth. Okay, so national action was formed as a, as a national socialist organization, and it was formed with the tireless efforts of our main organizer, Alex Davies. And he was, we already have quite a decent infrastructure in this country, which allowed him to 
attend lots of different groups and organizations to appeal to interested members. People would be interested in joining such a group. People were attracted to the uh, the look of the organization. We, you know, embraced quite a lot of modern aesthetics, which is something that other organizations have uh, really failed to catch up on. And um, I would say for your American listeners, it was quite easy to do in the United Kingdom compared to the how it would be done in the U.S. Because I feel the U.S. has this um, this problem that it doesn't have this single continuous movement. Like in most European countries, we have a single fascist movement that goes from the 1930s all the way to today. And it's it's basically kind of still together in even if it's in a nebulous form. It has this one single tradition, whereas I see a lot of the groups in the US, they have to kind of almost reinvent the wheel to, to begin with. So we were able to work off this history, work off in, 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 you know, existing groups and infrastructures. So there's already, you know, hundreds of these um, organizations around. They just simply hadn't embraced uh, 21st century media because we've had quite a long dark age. I mean, our main inspiration was um, how Europeans had been able to um, form large youth organizations. Um, in particular, my personal inspirations were uh, the Russian nationalists, um, figures like uh, Tessak and organizations that are fairly recent, like uh, White Rex. Um, you have uh, Kazapound in Italy and nationalists in Europe have generally embraced a lot of this modern militant look that is was essentially kind of alien to British politics because we've been been pursuing this entirely electoral route for the past 15 years without having a culture to go with it. So we have this kind of cultural paradigm uh, that we owned for ourselves that provided an informal space. And what we needed was kind of a youth movement, because although we had this intention of cooperating with older figures and organizations, in order to bring new people into the movement, there needed to be a space in which, you know, young people could be around uh, those who are the same age. Because usually what happens is, um, uh, like you say, someone forms an Internet party, and it's the same people who will join it, and very li- things don't go quite as they want. You know, they have these very grand aspirations. They want to be the organization which uh, they want to be in, you know, five, ten years' time. When you, what you have to do is be the organization you are now. You have to accept the situation you are now. So we have very modest aims as an organization was... You know, we're quite proud to say we got 15 people to attend such and such because it represented some kind of progress and more and more people would be coming into it. At the moment, it's I would say the organization is approaching what is in the three digits. And we have quite a wide range of support, particularly uh, the way in which we've been able to network with uh, similar kinds of organizations in Europe. You have... um, Slavic Union, Lithuanian Nationalist Youth Union, uh, the Resistance Movement, uh, White Rex in Russia. So that would cover 
for your listeners, Poland, Scandinavia, uh, Baltic states, um, and Russia as well. Um, we have quite a, a view of nationalism as well was, uh, quite different. The Europeans or, you know, the, if I want to say the, the historic fascist idea of, um, of nationalism was not reactionary. It was one that was, uh, quite forward thinking that was, let's say, more towards the idea of not identifying as white, but the idea of defending white civilization as a whole. So not pursuing this kind of like narrow chauvinism, but trying to pursue the interests of trying to, to raise the level at which our people and our civilization exist and bring a union between these different peoples you know, in what you call like uh, an Imperium Europa, right? Or, you know, that vision of European people united, because I feel that, you know, for hundreds of years, we've been waving these different colored bits of cloth, while our enemies have remained completely united. And while we're facing this great struggle, the, you know, this great apocalyptic struggle that has come upon the European people, that will decide whether they live or die, whether they see the next century or not, then it is our, ju- our duty to have a worldview that doesn't really discriminate them against them. So the first identifiable factor about national action as we got, came into 2015 was that we had interests within um, like uh, the Polish and the Lithuanian community in the country as well and we had were you know able to be in the same thinking and tradition as other Europeans which you know it's about like the level at which you you think and you present yourself there's something quite artificial about wanting to go back 30 or 40 years because you know nationalists they believe they can just wave a flag and like it's 1914 and everyone will just come to them. You know, that, that saying that I think Americans have is uh, build it and they will come. Right. But, you know, people don't think like that anymore. Those national symbols have been um, co-opted. Uh, they don't have the same meaning that they used to. So we kind of need a new symbol and a new idea of what nationalism is that gives us a future because the past has failed us. What is the point of going to have to want to go back 50 years is quite a uh, is quite a humble aim and it provides no guarantee for securing the future of the values that uh, you're claiming to express. So we believe in kind of a, a high ideal, uh, which is not something that you have with the existing quite like narrow patriotic culture. Like there's even an increasing tendency within the United Kingdom to towards like, um, I wouldn't call them real like nationalists, but you know, like the secessionist movements. So with Scotland, England, Wales, but, but all these nationalist movements are communistic. In, in their nature, like they're what you call the equivalent of the the Nordic Green Left, they're like the 
ultimate expression of civic patriotism. So for us, it is this idea of European identity, of, of white identity, which is, you know, almost unheard of in our particular politics. Um, now, the goals of our organization, we present quite moderate, uh, sorry, we present quite, we try to focus on short-term goals. So the main one is getting media attention, trying to end, to try and get our particular message out as being a more dominant narrative in the far right. So we have a message that is always very clear, very concise, and doesn't require elaboration. So Ben, let me just summarize what I've heard so far. National Action is, it's an action group. It's action-oriented. You do protests and other things like that. You are... Pan-European in your sensibility, you try not to get caught up in, in a sort of petty nationalist disputes between different European ethnic groups? Uh, yes, like, um, just as an example, uh, like the conflict uh, between the uh, Ulsterman and uh, the Irish, for example. Right, right. Yeah, those are, those are divisive. Well, very present, very present existing factors within mainstream British nationalism. Right. So you also are taking cues from youth organizations and movements on the continent. You mentioned Casa Pound. Do you uh, look at all at the um, Generation Identity movement? Uh, yes. Um, I think I was actually very, particularly impressed by a demonstration they had recently where they had... Um, uh, these guys holding um, refugees welcome re uh, signs, right? And they're kneeling on the floor with these guys dressed as ISIS, like with a knife, like beheading them. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty impressive. Now, those kind of stunts are impressive. It's been very interesting to see the development of um, generation identity. The only thing I will say was that they um, quite regularly, the, uh, these movements on the continent have been suppressed and uh, much like all, all the groups I was talking about in Russia earlier, like um, Tasak, uh, Wotan Yugend, um, uh, even Demushkin's party. Uh, Generation Identity, um, after they occupied um, the mosque and the Socialist Party headquarters, they went underground for quite a long time. But the type of activities that they engage in is the same kind of infrastructure that we're trying to build as well. Um, but that would be one facet of what we're trying to um, uh, what we're trying to establish. And with them, it's more the style. So they understand the importance of embracing a modern style. The same with uh, Kazapound, who you know, some might say a uh, questionable ideologically. Well, they're they're kind of evasive ideologically. That's exactly. that's my thing about them. And and in a way I see that with the identitarians too. They they travel very light ideologically. They simply say things like France is for the French. These other people need to leave. And it's hard to argue with that. It's a very simple position. It's hard to argue against it. And then Beyond that, they simply uh, 
have to be judged by their actions. And their actions are to engage in protests and political pranks to try and uh, draw attention to the contradictions of the system, uh, draw attention to uh, the destruction of France by immigration and so forth. And I, I think it's very successful. The Casa Pound people, you know, their, their banner is remarkably similar in its uh, style and colors to the National Socialist banner. Uh, it's it's red with a white circle in the center, and then it has this uh, this tortoise pattern on there, as opposed to a Hakenkreuz. And yet, when you ask them about their political views and whether they're anti-Semitic, just because they use Ezra Pound as their symbol and things like that, they're almost like these music scene type, edgy music scene stirs. They're, they're really evasive. Uh, when you actually try and pin them down as to why they use this kind of symbolism. And I think maybe, again, we just have to be somewhat uh, indulgent with that because they're trying to avoid getting in any kind of legal trouble. And then you just have to look at their actions. The trouble with Casa Pound, though, is they've also supported, um, you know, uh, non-whites in, in running for offices and things like that in, the, in, in their own homeland. So it, it is kind of confusing to, to know what they're really about, but I think their actions generally point towards them being an outgrowth of Italian radical nationalism, and they're they're trying to organize a community. They're a community organizing organization, and I I think that's really valuable. Do you consider yourself engaged primarily in building a nationalist community? Uh, yeah, ex that's exactly what it is. And, and to build a nationalist community, you need to have uh, people who are, want that kind of, uh, if you want, for lack of a better word, brotherhood, right, between all the different members and supporters. And that is what we've successfully built in this country now is um, uh, are people who are, are very close and tight-knit you know, with each other, uh, and who are providing infrastructure. So what we offer um, are self-defense classes and um, quite regular camping, um, you know, and other kinds of social activities in addition to demonstrations and uh, political meetings uh, and things of that nature. That's, that's very valuable. And how do you think that activity will lead to positive change political change down the road? The positive political change will be in the ideological lessons that people have learned. So if you're going to be involved in politics, right-wing politics, for any amount of time, you will benefit from it simply through, from practical experience. But we began with this very specific program of what we'd like to see, how we'd like our leaders to speak, how we want young people to present themselves, um, you know, to not be afraid, to not be ashamed, to know that they, what they are doing is 100% the right thing, you know. Um, that is what we'll benefit from in the future, and the close-knit social networks that have come out of that will pay off massively in the future and over the coming years, um, as will be visible. I mean, the one thing about National Action was just how fast certain things managed to appear in conjunction with the organization. So 
it starts out as this very small group of students, you know, doing these protests, you know, traveling from across the country to attend them. And within a year, you had um, major operations like uh, the SIGURD camps. Um, if you want some clarification, SIGURD is a kind of... Um, they Their project is quite similar to a thing you have in the US called uh, Operation Werewolf or the Wolves of Vinland, I believe they're called. Um, and it's the idea of like going out into nature, like... Uh, physical fitness, self-improvement, and community. And um, with uh, the SIGURD thing, it was uh, set up by, um, or was a benefit from the tra uh, training from Dennis Nikitin, who's the head of uh, right White, sorry, White Rex in Russia, which is um, a large um, mixed martial arts circuit. And he, he also went to um, also attended Kazapound as well um, on on the way. So it just to give you an idea of how interlinked all these um, or the, let's say it's on this basis that I would say that uh, we are a European movement. That's not just like rhetoric. It's uh, it's the reality of what we have. So. Um, we have projects like uh, like Sigurd, and you know other things have um, have also come out of the woodwork. You have uh, Western Spring, um, which is uh, a nationalist think tank. You had just before the formation of National Action, you had uh, London Forum, which now hosts like some of the best speakers I think of any nationalist platform in Europe. I'd say in, uh, equivalent to NPI or AMRAN. Uh, you also have uh, projects like um, uh, White Independent Nation, which is like um, uh, which is a financial property buying letting organization. And uh, yeah, having having infrastructure. So within the space of a year, we were able to. We now have what you call um, regional organizations, people who meet regularly on a regional basis. Um, that would be in uh, Scotland, Northwest, um, Wales, uh, and London. So where are your members most concentrated within the United Kingdom? They're most concentrated in the in the northwest, and that's where we've had um, principally because that's where we've had the best organizers, and where we have also um, um, where we've had outside services. So people get interested who are who let's say run gyms, things like that, and you know have lots of guys who drive up there. And you have more people who can meet potential recruits. They're very good at capitalizing on people who come in. Um, but we also, like I said, we're also strong in Wales, uh, in Scotland, and in London as well. Interesting. So how do you, again, back to this question, how do you envision this changing the political realm? Because ultimately, community building and alternative networks and things like that are, are great. But ultimately we need to have political power. Mm -hmm. How do you think nationalists are going to gain political power? And how do you think that what you're doing is going to contribute to that? Okay. So as I said, the core problem we have 
is the right wing. It's lack of unified message, lack of ability to manifest itself to be able to take charge of crisis because crisis is an important factor. Like with, uh, with Golden Dawn, right? You had these guys who had the right ideology, the right organization in the right place at the right time, and they were able to exploit that to its maximum effect. The same thing happens in many Western European countries. You're not going to have the same response, and what you are going to have is going to be controlled more or less by the enemy. It's going to be same old, same old, the same compromised politics. So we have to start from the beginning, but as I've always understood it, the problem, as you outlined beautifully, is that you have people who will set up political parties, right? And they pretend they're the organization they are in 20 years' time, right? They've got the first thing they decide on putting out is a manifesto before they have, you know... Um, a second member. A second member or a spreadsheet or a donation, right? And no wonder the thing falls. So we have to be humble in our aims, but capitalize on those aims quickly. And it's about, in ultimately, movements are about quality, not quantity. So to give an example um, of this would be something like the Nordic resistance movement in Scandinavia, which I think is a very good model to take. Um, they were formed, I believe, in the uh, early 90s. And only just this year in Sweden have they formed a political party. Now, that party has been formed in the wake of dozens of parties being created and folding, being created and folding, right? And they fold because their organization is poor and because the people in it distrust each other, don't share the same, don't have it proved to themselves what their aims and goals um, really are, okay? It's important. If you're going to play the political game, you have to play to win. And so you need that infrastructure. We cannot do that with the current right wing. So we have to build that from scratch. But there's nothing that can stop a group of people who are absolutely determined and ideologically committed. Like, I'd say, if there's any one thing I'd say that to endorse my group, it is that we have almost no attrition. So people who join the group have stayed, by and large, stayed in the group and have not left despite um, all of the uh, the persecution that we've faced uh, from mass arrests, through visits from the police. Um, we've never folded as an, uh, as an organization. I, you, know, you think, okay, imagine if that's funded, if it's, um, if it's organized and it's engaged in politics, that kind of, well, would you want to take the, the vanguard strategy, right? That kind of thing is the only thing that can win in a political situation, right? Against our enemies who are themselves disunified and weak. It's just a case of, uh, you know, kicking in the barn door and these groups will all, the whole opposition will completely crumble in how they deal with this. Just look at Greece. Look how many different oppositions they've been through over the past few years, it's only a matter of whereas we, we need to be completely strong and united. Everything is about trust in politics. If the people you're working with, you know, will never betray the ideas that they are standing for, then 
you'll never face any problems because the guy who you're standing next to is not going to fall or turn over to the other side. That's as bad as facing like 10 of your opponents who are in front of you. It's to lose a guy who's behind you.